Well, good morning, everybody. Good morning, good morning, good morning. If you have your Bibles with you, I want you to turn with me to Psalm 19. Psalm 19. As I shared a couple of weeks ago in July, you're going to hear from a lot of, uh, a lot of different voices, which is going to be really good. Uh, Dylan Adams is going to be uh, preaching the message next Sunday, and then that's followed up by a series of Mark and Barney and Jacob, and so it's going to be a really good, good month, so I'm encouraged by that. Um, we ended our series in James. We did our panel discussion last week on the doctrine of sanctification, and today I just want to share with you um, a message from Psalm 119. I, I, I think that there's a lot to this, so I hope you'll bear with me today. Um, my, my brain, for any of you who don't know the craziness of my brain, um, my brain just constantly is running with all of these different thoughts and ideas of what God is saying inside of his word. And there is, there is truth there, there is absolute truth, and we, we long to discover that. Um, but sometimes there is what scholars call uh, the principle of sensus planur, it's a Latin phrase that simply means fuller meaning. And what happens in the scripture, and I think all of you have experienced this, uh, sometimes we experience this when it's not the case, but I think all of us have experienced it where we read something and we see the meaning and we're impressed by what God is saying. And then we read it again at another point or another phase or another time in our life, maybe when we have a greater understanding and all of a sudden it becomes that much richer, becomes that much bigger to us, right? You've experienced that. And so this is that concept of census planur. There is a fuller meaning sometimes to the text that we're talking about. So without further ado, we're going into Psalm. 19, and we're going to go through the whole, uh, the whole psalm this morning. It's just a very powerful psalm. Here's what, here's what David says. Psalm 19, starting at verse 1. Maybe it'll come up on that screen. There it is. Awesome. The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. Verses 3 and 4. Keep going with me, guys. Uh, there is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth and their utterance to the end of the world. Verse 4b goes on and says, In them he has placed a tent for the sun, which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. It rejoices as a strong man to run his course, speaking of the sun at this point. Its rising is from one end of the heavens and its circuit to the other end of them. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. And then verse 7 goes on and it says, The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure making wise the simple. Verse 8, the precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Verse 9, the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. Verse 10, they are, they are more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Verse 11. Moreover, by them your servant is warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Verses 12 through 14. Who can discern his own errors? 
Acquit me of hidden faults. Also, keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, and I shall be acquitted of great transgressions. And everybody loves this prayer of David. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. C.S. Lewis uh, was reflecting on this psalm, and he reflected on all the psalms in a collection called The Reflections on the Psalms. And in page 63, C.S. Lewis said, I take this to be the greatest poem in the Psalter and one of the greatest lyrics in the world. I take this to be one of the greatest poems in the Psalter and one of the, or the greatest poem in the Psalter and one of the greatest lyrics in the world. Now, most people know who C.S. Lewis is. We know that his prose is unmatched. We also know that his fiction, that his, that his storytelling is uh, intense. Why is it that C.S. Lewis would see such uh, an immense psalm, such great poetry, such, uh, such, uh, why would he see this this psalm as beyond compare? Why would he see that? Uh, I think what makes us see it the way C.S. Lewis sees it is understanding a fuller meaning of the text. In order to understand it rightly, in order to understand how majestic this psalm is, we really do need to put all the pieces together. Because here's what often happens, I think, in the psalms. I think we read the psalms and we say, how in the world does this flow together? What is the point of all this, right? You guys notice in the first six verses, we're talking about God creating the heavens and the earth, and all of a sudden, verse 7 changes gears drastically, and it talks about the law of the Lord. And it's like, is he just ADD? Is he just randomly throwing stuff together? And then all of a sudden, verses 12 and 14, 12 through 14, are all a prayer. All of a sudden, David turns his focus to be personal with God. What's going on here? Well, there is a lot going on here, but we actually have to understand the text. We have to understand the words being used. We have to understand what's being said in order to get it. So uh, I hope the end of this psalm, at the end of this teaching today, you're going to tell take away something very important about your belief or your trust in creator God, okay? But before we get there, I want to walk you through the basic way of looking at any psalm. We'll just look through it verse by verse. We'll look through what God's word actually says, and there's a lot to be gleaned from that. There's a lot to be understood there. So let's start at chapter 19, verse 1. Here's what it says again. Chapter 19, verse 1. The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. How many of you know that creation, nature, speaks of God's power? How many of you know that? How many of you ever look at the stars and go, somebody had to have made this? Somebody had to have made this. Now, Show of hands, how many of you say, I still don't understand how he did it? Yeah, listen, you can read Genesis all you want, and we're still going, what? Right? Okay, so he talks, and things pop into existence. These are very hard things to, to understand. But we look at the sky, and we see the majesty of what God is. And the two, uh, the two terms that I think are very important here in this first verse are the term declaring, or as the NASB says, telling of, and then the word proclaiming, which the NSB calls declaring. They're, they're not the same word, and they, they mean different things. But the verbs actually declare uh, 
the verbs declare and proclaim are what are called participle forms. I know, Nathan Daniels is over here going, great, English class again. Thank you, Nathan. Anyway, these are participle forms, and they're expressive. When you understand the language, you, you get that they're actually expressive of uh, continuous revelation. Okay, they're a continuous verb form. Okay, so uh, what this can be said to mean is that the heavens keep on declaring and keep on proclaiming the glory of God. They didn't say something had to create the heavens and the earth and just end with that statement. Apparently, according to the way the psalmist wants to write this and the verbs that he uses, he wants us to know they keep declaring that God is who he says he is. Amen? That God is the creator of the heavens and the earth. And that's what leads us into uh, verse 2, which tells us, again, that day to day pours forth speech and night to night reveals knowledge. Now, I don't know exactly where my slides are or what the order is, so I apologize in advance, Miss Emmy. But day to day pours forth speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There's two ways to understand this, okay? Two ways to understand this are the way the NIV would render it, and that is day to day they pour forth speech. The NIV has inserted that word there. Day to day, they pour forth speech. What is they? What's the antecedent of they? Well, that would be the heavens declaring the glory of God. Not only are the verb forms something that goes perpetually, but the very next verse says every single day they're declaring this truth. Every single night, this truth is being proclaimed or being declared. So we see it again in this. The second way to understand that is actually when you start to discover how Jewish people wrote. Jewish people would write and they would use this phrase day to day and night to night or day after day and night after night. And they would use this in many different circumstances, many different contexts to describe something. And that is a perpetual or an ongoing uh, storytelling event. They'll use this in ancient Jewish writing to say day to day and night to night, a father and his children continue to proclaim the goodness of God. What does that mean, day to day and night to night? It means, according to their lexicon, their way of speaking, it means that generation to generation to generation to generation, they continue to declare the same truths over and over. So day after day and night after night. This is how we can understand this. This is really important when we start to understand... uh, when we start to think about how we understand the cosmos coming into creation, coming into existence. There is a creator, amen? There is a creator. Now, I know that this is a debate in our world, and I know that this is a challenge for us, but something about God's word declares that this is beyond argument. This is not something that we're really contesting, And I want to prove this to you. I want to keep going through what the Bible says about God's creation of the world and how in our current culture we are effectively playing right in to what the Scripture says and we are becoming the very foolish people when we reject what God says. Not not our interpretations of what God says. Please hear me. We can talk about how old the earth is and all of these things uh, till the cows come home. Uh, 
and we don't even own cows. So anyway, so we can talk about this forever, but what I'm trying to get at is that if we're careful in reading God's word, what we, what we discover is that the culture around us rejecting the notion of a creator is playing right into what God said they would do. Right into what God said we would do. Uh, in Psalm chapter 14, verses 1 through 3, it says this, The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Now listen, if you're talking to an atheist or a non-believer, I don't recommend you lead with this line, okay? I don't. You will not win friends and influence people, okay? You will make an enemy immediately. But listen to what God says. And please understand, when we are saying we trust God, when we're saying the amen to what God's word says, we're also saying the amen to this idea. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have committed abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. The Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek after him. They have all, uh, they have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Now this same exact sentiment is echoed in Psalm 53 verses 1 through 3. But what I want you to understand is that according to David, according to Psalm 19, the heavens tell and are continuing to tell of the glory of God. The expanse is, is uh, the expanse in heaven is declaring the work of God's hands and is continuing to declare it. Here's how much day to day and night to night it reveals this knowledge. There's a creator God. The same David also says that the fool says in their heart there is no God. The fool looks at the heavens and says, "No, nope, I don't agree." Somehow, this just came out of nothing. Somehow, this came from nothing. I recently watched a great uh, interview, a great uh, discussion, and this really was a great discussion. Most of the discussions on the internet and on YouTube devolve into a morass of stupidity. How many of you know that? Right? It should be called stupid tube, not YouTube, and that is what happens most of the time. But this discussion was genuinely good, and it was between two people that I, uh, that I respect, even though one is one that I disagree with deeply. Okay? One is a, a, a guy named William Lane Craig. Love William Lane Craig. He's, a, he's a, an apologist and a scholar, and a, he's just amazing, right? a Christian as well. And then there's another uh, guy who goes by the name Cosmic Skeptic. Cosmic Skeptic. And they had this discussion on YouTube, and it was really profound because this young man, he's only 18 years old, and he's about 40 billion times smarter than I am. So I, I'm envious, but it's amazing. So he's a really smart young man, and he's talking to William Lane Craig, and they're talking about this idea of how God creates, uh, if God created something from nothing, if there is a God. Of course, the atheist doesn't believe there is a God. And William Lane Craig just continues to push back this idea that it is impossible to get something from nothing. Do you know this? It's impossible to get something from nothing. And so he uses an argument uh, uh, that is called the Kalam cosmological argument. Oh, I know all this is like, what the heck are you talking about, Nathan? And what's that foreign word you just used? Anyway, the Kalam cosmological argument, it's just a powerful video. You can go on my uh, uh, Facebook page and you can see that I posted it. It's just really amazing. But this is where our culture is. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. 
And one of the versions of that is all of this creation, all of this majesty, it just came out of nothing. It's just a cosmic accident. This is absurd. And what God says about this and what David says specifically about this is that those who declare this idea are actually fools. But I need you to hear something. There is a lot of hope that you need to hear about what is, quote unquote, a fool. I'm going to read you a passage of scripture that is from Proverbs 8, and it's not going to be on the screen. I want you to just take a second and listen to what these words say. And I want you to hear the disposition of wisdom of God towards the foolish person. The Lord possessed me, wisdom, at the beginning of his way, before his works of old. From everlasting I was established, from the beginning, from the earliest times of the earth. When there was no depths, I was brought forth. When there was no springs abounding with water. Before the mountains were settled, before the hill was brought forth, I was there. While he had not yet made the earth and the fields, nor the first dust of the world, When he established the heavens, I was there. When he inscribed a circle on the face of the deep, when he made firm the skies above, when the springs of the deep became fixed, when he set forth the sea and its boundaries so that the water would not transgress his command, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him as a master workman, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing always before him, rejoicing in the world, his earth earth and having my delight in the sons of men. I was rejoicing. Wisdom was rejoicing in the world, in the earth, and having her delight, wisdom, in the, in the sons of men. And then the passage goes on. So this paints this picture of creation and how wisdom was there. And then it paints this picture of lady wisdom calling out to the world. Okay, And wisdom calls out to the world, and it says this. This is really cool. It's found in Proverbs chapter 9. It says that Lady Wisdom has set a table. And that at this table, she has provided food, and she has mixed her wine, and she has set it for a specific person to come in. That specific person is the fool, or the naive, or the simple Right? Yes, David says that the fool says in his heart, there is no God. But God's heart towards the fool through wisdom is to say, come and talk to me. Come and sit with me. Come and eat of my food. Come and drink of my wine. Because when you do, you will understand. Proverbs or Psalm tells us, Psalm 19 tells us, the heavens are telling of the glory of God and their expanse is declaring the work of his hand. Day to day it pours forth speech and night to night it reveals knowledge. And guess what God wants to say to the person who says there is no God? He wants to say, come sit with me. What is the disposition of the Christian towards a foolish and obstinate world? The same disposition William Lane Craig had with this young man, Cosmic Skeptic. He sat down with him. He didn't berate him. He didn't pick on him. He didn't laugh at him. He didn't roll his eyes at him. He had a legitimate discussion. And this young man was absolutely, absolutely blown away. You should watch the interview. It's just powerful, okay? He, he didn't get to walk away from this going, I just think you're a jerk and all Christians are stupid. He walked away from this discussion and went, I've got a lot to write. 
I've got a lot to consider. I've got a lot to think through. Because the heart of God towards the fool is not to say, you fool. The heart of God towards the fool is, come and eat with me. Come and drink with me. I want to teach you something. This should go a long way with how we approach the rest of the world. Amen? Somebody says, I don't believe in creation. I believe in evolution. I believe in this. I believe in this. Calm down. Calm down. Have a conversation with people. Sit down with them. Talk to them. Guess what? There's a large chance you're going to learn something. That is, if you're humble. (laughs) There's a large chance you're going to learn something. So, right off the bat, what we're learning from this is that the heavens declare that God is creator of all things. He is the one who has made these heavens and these earth, uh, this earth. He also tells us that the fool says in his heart there is no God. But the principle according to scripture is to sit with the fool and talk with them. Because if God does it, if wisdom does it, we have no right to say otherwise. Now, this Psalm 14 actually brings up a really important principle. You notice that it says, The fool is said in his heart, there is no God. And then it goes on and it says something very familiar to most Christians. It says that no one seeks after God. They have all turned aside. Together they've become corrupt. I want to talk to the Christians right now, or at least a a learned Christian, who gets caught up in um, Romans 3 discussions where it feels like God is basically saying everybody in the whole entire world rejects him and doesn't seek him. There is no way that this is true. It is an absurd, uh, critical, uh, way too literal reading of what God's word says. The person in Paul knows the Psalms very well. And when he says in Romans 3, quoting, there is no one who seeks God, no, not one, all have turned aside, no one wants to even care about God. Do you know what what, uh, Paul knows? Paul knows David. Paul knows the Psalms. And what he is doing, because he's speaking in his context, he's speaking very clearly and saying, do you know who rejects God and doesn't even look for him? The foolish person. And you know what Paul's warning in Romans 3 is? Don't be a fool. Don't be a fool. Don't resist. Don't push back. Please know that God is there and that he cares for you. I want you to see that all of these scriptures are so intimately tied together. We have to really put them together to understand God's word. So in Romans chapter 1 verses 19 through 20, it says, Because that which is known about God is evident within them. He's speaking of the world at large. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. Do you know what Paul just said? Same thing David said. The heavens declare the glory of God. The same thing David said. The fool says in his heart there is no God. uh, Paul just simply said it a different way by saying, you're just making excuses, (laughs) right? But there is no excuse. Everything is declared God. How do we move from people having a general revelation of God having to create the world to believing in him as a personal savior? Do you know that if you win the argument that something had to make the world, you have not even scratched the surface of who made the world? Did you hear what I just said? (laughs) 
If you have won the argument that a God made the world, you have not taken even one step closer to the question of who made the world. A God making the world doesn't matter to this world. It doesn't matter to salvation either. People can believe that God made the world. People can believe in God. And do you, do, did you know they'll still go to hell? Did you know that? The Bible says the demons believe and they shudder. Belief in a God is not what matters in life. It is trust in Jesus Christ alone. So what we have to do as Christians is we have to cross this massive chasm. We have to get people from foolishness, there is no God, which requires us sitting down at the table with them like God would, like wisdom does, okay? Sit down at the table with them, invite them into here, move them from there is no God to let's debate there is a God, and then we have to move them from there is a God to it's this God and he wants to redeem you. A lot of Christians pat themselves on the back. A lot of you might do this. Pat yourself on the back where you have discussions and you finally get your atheist friend or your non-believing friend to admit, well, yes, okay, maybe something created all of this. And then you think, you pat yourself on the back and you think, yay for me, another soul for heaven. No, a well-informed soul for hell is what you've created. Nathan, this is not inspiring right now. I know. I know, but I want to tell you the truth. There is a difference between showing the fool there is a God and showing the God believer that that God's name is Jesus Christ and that he wants to save you and redeem you. How do we move from there to there? Well, I hate to break it to you. This is where Francis of Assisi was wrong yet again. I say this all the time. Francis of Assisi, go out into the world and preach the gospel and use words if you have to. Well, you have to right? I say this all the time. You do not get to walk out and try to help a little old lady across the street, expect somebody to go, that's Jesus in somebody, and repent and believe in God. I know you're trying it. It doesn't work that way, right? You don't get to hand out bottles of water to people and say, God loves you, and they're automatically going to connect. It's Jesus, this God you're talking about, and guess what that means? I must repent. It doesn't work that way, What works, according to God, is the gospel, which is the power of God, unto salvation. Did you know that the gospel is a message? It's good news, and you have to speak it. And the reason why the church isn't changing is because what we do is we bring somebody from non-believer to believer in a God, but we never move forward. And here's why. Because once you start preaching the gospel, you start making enemies. Because once you start preaching the gospel, here's what you're saying. Your life, it's garbage, and God wants to turn it around. (laughs) Isn't that true? Well... Well, I don't want them to hear that because then they're not going to like me. (laughs) They don't like you anyway, (laughs) right? They're just smiling at you, okay? So how do we do this? Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. 
And then he goes on in Romans 10, verses 8 through 17, and speaks this huge and beautiful message about uh, believing in the gospel. Listen to what he says here. It says, And how will they hear without a preacher? And how will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. That is, Jesus who saves. However, they did not all heed the good news, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So... Here it is, church. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. How do we make the, make the chasm? How do we bridge the chasm? Well, first, we invite the fool to the table. At first, we don't act like they have cooties or leprosy and don't talk to them. We sit down with them and then we offer them the truth that God has for us. And we move them from I don't believe to you really got to consider Everything didn't come from nothing. Everything we see came from something because the heavens declare the glory of God. And then you move them from that through the gospel to the God whose name is Yahweh, whose son is Jesus Christ, who is the redeemer of the world. And guess what? Everybody in this room can be a preacher. What? Nathan? Listen. I'm going to tell you something right now that has nothing to do with church leadership, has nothing to do with church structure. Preaching is a, is a art form of declaration of the gospel. Not only is everyone in this room a preacher, or can be a preacher, you should be a preacher. You should be. Why? Because the world's dying outside. Did you know that? The world is dying outside. And you know what we do? We go, I don't even know them. And since I don't know them, their death doesn't matter to me. We do this a lot. But their death matters to God. And he has sent us to preach and to proclaim the truth of who Jesus is. Go into all the world and preach the gospel. And use your words because it's a message of God's word. Right? So this is how we bridge people and make this gap happen. All of this, believe it or not, all of this is found deeply nested within Psalm 19, right? Because what David experiences is this massive transition from cosmic God to covenant-making God to personal God. So let me fire through these verses so I can give you the explanation and then I want to get to that fuller meaning that I shared with you just a few moments ago. Starting at verse 3 of Psalm 19. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. What is David talking about? The heavens. Did you know the heavens don't talk? (laughs) The stars aren't screaming at you? I wish they were. Right, But the heavens aren't talking, and yet do they speak? Yes. Day to day they pour forth speech. Verse 3 again. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard, not audibly. Their line has gone out through all the earth, and their utterance to the end of the world. In them he has placed a tent for the sun, which is a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. It rejoices as a strong man, the sun, rejoices as a strong man to run his course. Its rising is from one end of the heavens and its circuit to the other end of them. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. 
I had a graphic up here that I was going to show you, and they can put it up on the screen. I'm not going to get too deep into this, but it is worth you understanding how the ancient world, at some point, you should do the study, it is important for you to understand how the ancient world understood cosmology, how they understood the cosmos. You notice it talked about the circuit of the sun. They viewed it as moving from one end to the other. What do we know now? The sun's not moving, (laughs) right? They weren't trying to be literal here. They were showing what they observed. From our vantage point, this is how they saw things happening, okay? So ancient cosmology is fascinating because they viewed the sky as a vault. I will explain it a little bit, but they viewed the sky as a vault resting on foundations. You can find this in the scripture. They also viewed the earth as this giant disk that was resting on pillars, You know what happened when we went to space, right? Nothing. It's all fake. The world's flat. Anyway, so anyway, so what happened when we went to space is we realized that the Bible is telling us that the earth is immovable. It is not saying there's literal pillars there. Another food for thought there when you take your Bible too literally and not figuratively the way God wrote it, okay, or God inspired it. So they believed that this was this big disc and that there were these, pow- uh, the, these pillars that held things. And they also believed that Sheol was a dark, watery, and even dusty, I know, what a contradiction, watery and dusty place that only was accessible through death and to which you never returned. You went to Sheol, you were dead, and you were gone. Some of this is where we get our ideas of hell. But when we read Psalm chapter 19 and we hear words like their utterance is to the end of the world and in him he placed a tent for the sun. What did they mean by tent for the sun? This canopy. It's exactly what they saw and what they understood. There's, there is a, a ridiculous amount of writing that covers this, guys. So there was a tent, and the sun came out, and it peeked out, right? And it was just like a bridegroom coming out of the chamber. There was light, and there was happiness, and there was joy when the sun came out. Same thing. It rejoices as a strong man running his course, and it ran his course from side to side, from end to end. That's how they understood that. So if we look at Psalm 19, we can understand some basic truths. And they're there, and that's what they say. But there is a bigger piece. Next, we, we go to verse 7. And listen to what uh, David makes this shift and, and says here. He says, the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. And you go, what in the world are you doing, David? You need to take your Ritalin and get back on to the subject that we're talking about. But here's where we've made the mistake. We didn't read the words. I'm running out of time, so I'm going to jump to my fuller meaning here. Look at what happens in verse 1 again. It says, the heavens are telling the glory of God. Do you know what term is used for God here? It's the term El. El is the term used for the cosmic creator in all of the scripture. It's also the beginning of the term Elohim, which is a name for God, both big G and little g. Okay, So God and gods, Elohim. Many Elohim, one Elohim, okay? That's the way the Bible talks about it. But El is the declaration here. When David says the heavens have declared the glory of El, he is saying that the heavens actually declare the glory of a cosmic God that is bigger than all things, and it's mostly to us an unrelatable God. He is God of the universe. But all of a sudden, David starts making his progression, which is really powerful. In verse 7, he says this, The law of the Lord 
is what? Is perfect, restoring the soul. All of a sudden, David changed, and he changed to a really important name. He no longer is saying God in general, L. All of a sudden, he says the law of Yahweh. The law of Yahweh. What did David just do? He made the transition of what I'm talking about with the world around us. He made the transition from there is no God to there is a God. He made the heavens. But that's not enough. Let's move from that God to the covenant-making God. Let's move from General L to, oh, by the way, I know his name. His name is Yahweh. And in verse 7, he says, the law of the Lord is perfect. On Tuesday, we had our group, and we were talking about this, and it was really amazing because Logan Matson joined us. He is the new uh, Young Life director at West Claremont Schools. Logan, would you raise your hand? If you want to talk to this guy about uh, your kids, you should talk to him about your kids. In Young Life, it's a really awesome program. But anyway, Logan said, you know, if I had not understood the depth or the weight of verses 1 through 6, that God was the star maker, that God was the heaven maker, all of those things, then I would go into verses 7 through 11 and go, who cares what his laws are? There's a reason David is doing this. David wants to set up the majesty of the God we're talking about. Then he wants to go to the personal level to say, I know that God's name, his name is Yahweh, right? And then David is going to move here in just a second to say, not only do I know his name, but this is my God. This is my God. This is the transition you have to make as a Christian. And this is the transition that we're trying to get the world to make when they believe in God. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. How many of you say, scale of 1 to 10, I believe the law of the Lord is awesome, restoring my soul all the time. 10, totally. Why aren't you raising your hand? Right? Because he says, don't do that. And you're like, I don't like you, Lord. (laughs) I don't like you very much. Right? Well, you will grow to like him when you understand that he's the maker of the heavens and the earth. You will understand him and like these things when you understand how big he is, okay? But the personal God has made a covenant. The law of Yahweh is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Another term for fool there. What is God doing? He's trying to make us all wise, And he's going to do that if we will be in covenant with him. Verse 8, the precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. How many of you think the precepts of God rejoice your heart all the time? (laughs) Some of us. Some of us like, whatever, right? The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Here, I can prove to you that you don't actually believe this all the time. And I'll prove it through your children. Did you know they don't always like what you tell them to do? Some of you ain't listening to me, right? Your kids don't like what you tell them to do, and yet they love you. They just don't like what you say. Guess what? You love the Lord. That's fine. You don't always like what he says. But the more you understand he is the maker of heaven and earth, he's also got a name, and he can be your God, the more you're going to really, really listen to these things. The next one, the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. Who in the world references the fear of the Lord this way? The fear of the Lord is pure is the way it would be rendered, uh, literally. The judgment of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold. How many of you are like, you know what? I'm going to pass on my retirement. I just want God's law. 
you guys are not playing well with me today, right? These laws and these commands are more valuable, more precious than gold and silver. And yet we're like, I just don't like you, Lord. I don't like what you have to say for me, okay? Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. I want to read you something uh, from 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5. This is the New Testament, by the way. For all of those who say that Paul or the writers of the New Testament are against God's law and want to throw out all of his commands and all this gibberish, you aren't reading the Bible fully. Listen to what he says in 1 John 5, 1 through 3. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And whoever loves the Father loves the child born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and observe his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not... Why would John write that unless he was talking to people who believed them to be burdensome? He corrects it, doesn't he? He says, listen, I know you don't like God's laws all the time, but they're not burdensome. As a matter of fact, going through verses 7 through 11 again, they're perfect, restoring the soul. They're uh, for making the simple wise. They are rejoicing to the heart. They are enlightening to the eyes. They endure forever because they are pure. They are true. They are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold. They are sweeter than honey. They are there to warn us. And there is great reward if we will keep them. God's laws, God's commands are not burdensome. So now we've made the transition, right? We've gone from the transition of there is no God because that's what the fool would think to let's have supper with God. Let's have supper with wisdom and let's understand that there is something that has made all of this because that's God's heart towards the fool and all of us have been fools at some point. So we sit down and we know that there is a God. But just knowing there is a God is a far cry from knowing Jesus is that God. And the only way to get from there is a God to Jesus is that God is through the gospel of Jesus Christ. We hear that gospel and all of a sudden we move from the heavens declare the glory of a God, L, to his covenant is made by a God with a name. The covenant made is one by a God with a name and his name is Yahweh. And everything he does and everything he says is good. And if you want to know him, 1 John 5 says, you must know Jesus Christ, okay? So now we have that. That transition then takes us into, and now he can become my God. And now he can become my God. Listen, I love you. I love you. But if you come to church, and if you live your life believing that there is a God, you will still die and be judged. And you're looking at me going, it's it's not fair, Nathan. I don't like this. Fine. I understand. Your family members who come to celebrate Easter and Christmas and get in there two days of church every year and try to act as though that that's what it's all about. 
I hope you know that there is a large likelihood that they just believe that something created everything. But that is not enough, church. That is not enough. We are not, we are not being asked to believe in a general God according to the scripture. There's no way you can construe it in the Bible. That's not what we're called to. If, if that were the case, guess what you could believe? You could believe Allah created everything. You could believe the God of the Mormons created everything. You could believe the God of the Jehovah's Witnesses created everything. You could believe anything you wanted. A flying spaghetti monster. I don't care. You could believe anything. But that's not what we've been called to. Just like David, we've been called to the heavens that declare that El created things. We've been called to know him by the name Yahweh. And we've been called to know Yahweh through his son Jesus Christ who forgives us of our sins, redeems, of us, uh, redeems us of our unrighteousness, and offers us freedom and life forever. We are saved by grace through faith, faith that comes through hearing, hearing by the word of God, which is the gospel, and only, only, only in Jesus Christ. I love you with all my heart, but please, if your belief is solely in this idea that I believe a God exists, please sit down with me. Please talk to me. We have a big chasm to cross. We have a big gap to get over. It is not just El created heaven. It is Yahweh made a covenant, and now that God can be yours in a personal sense. So this is how David ends. He says, who can discern his errors? The NIV gets this one right by adding into that mix his own errors. Because this is not referring his, the antecedent is not God here, okay? Who can discern his own errors? How many of you know you do things wrong and you don't even, you're like, I know I'm doing something wrong, but I'm just not even sure what it is. Yeah, yeah, okay, fine. I'm doing something wrong. God is not looking at you like, idiot. He understands your ignorance. He understands all of our ignorance in that. So look at what David says. He says, who can discern his errors? The implied answer is nobody can do that. So what is the cry? What is the request of God? Acquit me of hidden faults. Acquit me of hidden faults. And then he goes on and he says, also keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me. Then at that point, in your uh, protection, in your care, in your loving me, I will be blameless. And I shall be acquitted of great transgressions. And here's the ultimate transition. And here's what we need to believe as Christians. And here is what we're trying to get the world to come to. There is a God who created something, everything, by the word of his mouth. That God makes a covenant with the people he made, and that God's name is Yahweh. You get to know Yahweh through his one and only son, Jesus Christ, and when you do that, you can commune with him directly. He is your God. He is personal to you. He is listening to you. He is hearing you. He is waiting for you to run to him. And he's also that God who's waiting on the porch for you, right? So listen to what David prays. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, 
my rock and my redeemer. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Your family, you, the atheists that you know, the people who are, who are in discussions with you to, to understand that something can't come from nothing, those people, this is when you will know, this is when you will know that their faith and their trust is truly in the God of the scriptures through Jesus. When they don't just say, yeah, I believe God, there's a God. It's not that. Yeah, I also believe it's the God of the Jews. I understand it's Yahweh. Yep, that's, that's it. Not enough. You can be Jewish and not know the Messiah and there will be judgment. Here's when you can know. When the transition comes from God in general created everything to his name is Yahweh to his only son saved me and I actually talk to him this way. Lord, I want the words of my mouth I want the meditation of my heart to be acceptable in your sight. In other words, I surrender. I love you. I know your ways are good. I know you made all this stuff. I don't understand how you did it. That's beyond me. But I know you're good. I know you love me. I know you sent your son to die for me. So please, Lord, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O oh Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Church, we're living in a skeptical age, a skeptical world. And that skepticism is deeply embedded in the church. Because somewhere along the line, some idiot preacher told you that it was enough for you to just believe there is a God. It's not enough. Never has been enough. As a matter of fact, David seems to say the fact that there is a God is a duh moment. Duh. The heavens declare his glory. It's not enough. It's not enough. What you need to know is that there is salvation and there is life and there is healing and there is abundance. In the God whose name is Yahweh, whose son is Jesus, who loves you and died for you. This is why we get up on Sundays and we come to church and we worship together. Not because church is magical, right? It's because this is a community of those who profess the exact same person of Jesus Christ who redeemed us. It's a group of people who have surrendered to the same covenant-making God who declared the heavens by the word of his mouth and they came into existence. It is a group of people that worship him and him alone and not general God. It is a group of people who don't believe that prayers and well wishes and good thoughts make any difference in the world, but that if we will pray to a prayer answering God, to a God behind the scenes that has power, whose name is Yahweh, whose son is Jesus Christ, we will forever be changed and our prayers will be answered. It's a group of people that believe our entire life is supposed to be altered and changed because somebody created the heavens? No, because his name is Yahweh and because his son's name is Jesus and because he wants to be your redeemer. Church, 
We gather together not for ritual, not for routine, not for foolishness. We gather together because there is a truth in this world that we have been invited to believe into. And that truth is the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the truth that you're to go into the world and proclaim. So I know that this is one of those stinger moments. But it's wonderful for you to tell a a stranger that God loves them. But it won't lead anywhere until you tell them the name of that God. And his son who died for them. Did you know that? Do I think you should rush into that in one fell swoop, right? One conversation, in and out. Well, if it presents itself, sure. If it presents itself, sure. But if not, walk into this slowly over time. God has been patient with us. He didn't reveal everything to us in the first go around, did he? He's been patient, kind to us. You can be patient and kind to those who don't believe. But please hear me. Your aim is to get them to know the name of Jesus. Your family, your friends, all those funerals that you go to for for people that you say, well, they're in a better place. Did you ever talk to them? I hope they're in a better place. I pray they're in a better place. Sometimes we just say that kind of stuff as coping mechanisms, make ourselves feel better. Did you ever preach the gospel to them? Did somebody preach the gospel to them? We are saved by grace through faith in King Jesus, church. There's a giant chasm between believing something created all of this and his name is Jesus. And you gotta get there. You gotta get there. I know this is not the friendliest message, right? This is not one of those messages you're like, That made me feel good because what we mean by a message that makes us feel good is he told me that everything I do is absolutely perfect already. (laughs) Well, the things you do aren't perfect. The things I do aren't perfect. You know how hard it is to get to the name of Jesus? Be candid with me for just a second. You, You know how hard it is to get to the name of Jesus? It's really, really hard. Why? I don't know. Maybe it's my faith. Maybe it's I want to be liked too much. And guess what, guys? I'm a professional Christian. You know how easy it is to talk about Jesus to you guys? Real easy. You all say you believe in him. Talk to the world about Jesus, and they look at you and go, oh, here we go. Don't invite him again, right? We don't want to talk to that guy. I know your pain, and you know why I know your pain? Because I'm just like you. You can go to seminary. You can be raised in the church. It does not make one bold. It doesn't. You know who makes you bold? The Jesus you say you believe in. And you know what also accompanies boldness? terror, (laughs) fear, because sometimes you are bold, you know what the truth is, but it's hard to open your mouth. Church, we're wasting our time if we offered everybody God, whatever that means. We're wasting our time. 
We are preaching one. What's his name, church? What's his name? Are you embarrassed to say it now? What's his name? His name is Jesus. You're preaching that. You have to preach that name. You must declare that name. Otherwise, this whole thing is just a, it's a coping mechanism in itself. Church is therapy for us. Church can't be therapy. Church is a launching pad for an eternity of hope and an eternity of life. I hope that you believe that, church. So David teaches us a lot of basic things. God created the heavens and the earth. He teaches us some basic things. He, Yahweh, made a covenant and his laws are good. He taught us a really great way to pray. Pray, let the meditation of my heart be pleasing to you. All that's great. But then when you look to the census planor, when you look to the deeper meaning, here's what you see in David's progression. He said, a general God created everything, but I know his name. It's Yahweh. He made a covenant with a people called Israel. Those people he has brought forth salvation and redemption through. He's my God. And the truth is, he can be yours as well. When you're reading the Psalms, don't get lost. Don't be confused. Don't scratch your head. Don't think that they have no end in them. David deeply understood what his God was telling him to write, what his God was telling him to communicate. He understood it. It's there. It's for us to glean from. It's for us to experience. I hope you'll take something from today's message and apply it in your life. I hope this helps you. I hope it's encouraging to you because we're standing on that truth and not general truths, not hope, hoping that everybody gets saved someday. We are preaching a gospel message. In the name of Jesus, amen.